When we first arrived at St. Jude, it was just... Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. Talking baseball, Klazuski and Vanilla talking baseball. Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. Today I have a very special guest. The first ever Hall of Famer to appear on the Shigon podcast, Mr. Mike Piazza, was a 12-time All-Star, a 10-time Silver Slugger, a career 308 hitter with 427 home runs, 1,335 RBIs, played for five teams during his career, the Dodgers, Marlins, Mets, Padres, and the Oakland A's, and in 2016, he was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Regarded by many as the best hitter, best hitting catcher in Major League Baseball history. Welcome to the Shigon Podcast, Mike. Hey, Jeff. It's good to be with you, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've never done a podcast where someone was um, on the other side of the world, man. So uh, you're in Italy right now. Yeah, that's true. I moved here about four years ago, and um, it was... Basic, my wife and I were just looking for something a little different. Um, we just wanted to give our kids a European experience. And uh, I was fortunate, you know, my father was from Italy and I was able to get citizenship. And then, of course, after the pandemic, um, kind of one year, two years turned into four already. So, um, but it, now it's kind of become home. Our kids are enjoying the school here. And uh, as you will probably know, I'm going to be managing the Italian team in the World Baseball Classic next March. And we just had an incredible week uh, exchange where a bunch of the guys came over and we did some clinics and got together because when the Classic starts, we have to open up in Taipei and we're not going to have a lot of time as a team. So we thought it'd be a good idea if we get everybody together. And it uh, was an amazing experience. Um, and so we'll see. And it's going to be a tough tournament, but uh, we have some pretty good guys and uh, Hopefully, we'll we'll make some noise. Yeah, the uh, yeah, baseball is really uh, gaining its popularity in Italy. It is. I mean, it's always it's always had a niche. the The World War II uh, service members brought the game here uh, in Natuno, which is south of Rome, when they did the Italian landings, and it just kind of it kind of took off. And the one thing about Italy in general and Europe, and to a certain extent, is um. Sports here is not really a business. And, um, for example, there's no sports in the schools here. If kids want to play baseball or play soccer or run track or do something like that, they have to go to like a club, what would be considered like a private club. So funding is always an issue. And the Italian league, the IBL, the top league, had its heyday in the 80s and kind of late 80s and then mid-90s. It kind of fizzled out a little bit. Some teams got into financial issues and whatnot. So since I've been here, we've, we've done pretty well. I mean, we, we finished third in Europe last year. We have a European tournament in September. But right now, it's very important that hopefully we can do well in the Classic because that will trigger some funds that will kind of uh, help the grassroots effort here. And as you well know, uh, baseball is a game that has to be played young, um, and it just needs to be from the youth. I mean, myself and a couple other guys here, we're kind of like – the past, but we have to look to the future. And the only way to do that is to grow the game through the youth and through the kids. I hear you, man. That's awesome. The uh, So who are some of the – I apologize for not knowing this. So who are some of the the top players uh, on Team Italy? Well, we just uh, – it's funny you say that because I just got to know all these guys. And um, for – obviously, the obvious one would be Trey Mancini. You know, we kind of have him maybe as our DH – um, we have a couple of uh, Miles uh, Mastroboni, who's with the uh, with the Rays. He's a hell of a he's a hell of a prospect. He's in the Dominican now. Um, a couple other pitchers that um, I've just become familiar with. And the thing is, we've really decided to go younger this year because I think at the end of the day, my idea was to get younger minor league guys who I just have been getting to know myself. But I've been fortunate that I've had um, Blake Butera, who is the two-time minor league manager of the year. He just wanted again this year. He's with the Rays. 
I believe he was in South Carolina and um, he's an amazing guy, Boston College guy. So we've all been recruiting and we've kind of put our lists out and we found out guys that uh, um, have had uh, at least one parent that is Italian that we can trace back because the rules specify we have to trace back to the um, um, to at least one parent to Italy. Um, Vinny Pasquantino with the uh, the Royals, a young slugger who came up and had a bunch of home runs. So I think we're going to be okay. I mean, we're we're still piecing out some pitching, as you well know, is very important. But uh, so we're going to have a good core group of guys, and in a short tournament, anything can happen. Yeah, that's cool, man. I uh, th- that's really neat that you get to do that, and, and you've never coached at any level professionally, right? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the one thing, um, there's a good friend of mine uh, who recently passed away. His name was Bill Holmberg, and he married an Italian girl. He played in the league over here in like 89, and he kind of settled here and had had his family here. And we became very close because I played in the first classic for Italy in 2006, and I coached in a couple others. And um, I stepped away a little bit because of business. responsibilities and family. I just couldn't, didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So I wasn't at the classic, I believe in 17, but he convinced me to come back. And there was a change in the, in the, um, the federation here, which runs baseball. Baseball is actually funded through the Olympic committee. So when baseball is in the Olympics, it triggers some more funding, uh, for, for the baseball program, the federation. And they reached out to me. And since I was living over here, it made a lot of sense. And, and unfortunately, when I agreed to come back, Bill passed away. So oh. I'm kind of doing this as a tribute to him. Um, and we hired a great a coordinator. His name is Gianmarco Farone, who is Italian-Canadian. And he just recently worked with MLB in Canada. So he's the one that's doing pretty much all the work. I'm just kind of sitting back and making sure we hire the right people and uh so I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of like just the guy that's coordinating things, but I really needed a good coaching staff. We have Chris DeNorfia, if you don't remember, he's AA, I think, manager with the Rockies, Jack Santora, Brian Sweeney, who's bullpen uh, coach with the Indians, or excuse me, the Guardians. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, and then we're, we add a few more names, but, uh, again, we have a great crew and, and to be honest with you, I, I cannot, I wouldn't be nowhere without my staff. These guys have worked so hard to recruit these kids. And I think you're going to see some really bright names come up and hopefully, um, make a name for themselves. Well, that's great, man. I, I wish you guys the best. Uh, thank you. you a lot of fun. I, uh, let's start talking a little bit about, uh, how your baseball career started. So mm-hmm. we were both drafted in the same year, 1988. Wow. I thought I was drafted in a low round in the, <laughs> I was in the 30th round. And, and, but I see that, and I knew this, uh, you were drafted in the 62nd round by the Crazy, Dodgers. Right? And as a favor to Tommy Lasorda. Yeah. You know, that's crazy to me that a Hall of Famer Drafted in the 62nd round. Now we got 20 rounds, Mike. Now, I now know, I saw all those, that. All those overachieving kids that uh, aren't even going to get a chance anymore. I, I hate that. But So how did Tommy Lasorda, your relationship with Tommy Lasorda, I believe it was through your father, help you get drafted? Yeah, well, this was, again, pre-internet, pre-social media. So there wasn't a lot of uh, – there wasn't sort of a vehicle to tell my story but honestly, not to downplay um, the whole 60-second round thing. I mean, I was a two-time All-State player coming out of Pennsylvania. I went to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And actually, two former players that went there, um, or one of the former baseball players was actually Andre Thornton. I don't know if you remember him. Yep, I remember uh, him. With Cleveland in the 70s, 80s. He was a DH, and, and he went there. So we had a very strong baseball program. Uh, I had two very good uh, junior and senior year, and I was playing first base. And so Tommy Lasorda was very good friends with a couple of college coaches. And I was getting recruited by a few colleges that you may or may not have heard of, a couple of smaller schools. And Tommy said, look, I know Ron Frazier from University of Miami. Let me give him a call and see if he would be interested in taking you. So that was good and bad. I mean, it was good because UM was an amazing college program, but it was bad because I wasn't quite quite ready for that caliber of baseball coming from a northern school. Um, 
not really having a true position. Obviously, I can hit a little bit. I was still continuing to grow and I needed a little bit more work. So, um, but again, it all worked out in the end. So I went to UM. I wasn't playing. I had nine at-bats my freshman year. Uh, and then I said to my dad and to Tommy, I go, look, I, I got to go play because I'm not getting at-bats and I'm not getting any better. And so then I transferred to Miami-Dade Junior College and I played for uh, the winningest junior college coach of all time, Demi Maneri. And you may know his son, Paul Maneri, who recently was, uh, I think, at LSU. Yep. Um, and I, Paul at the time, I think, was with FI or St. Thomas or FIU. And he said at the time, look, you know, you got to keep hanging in there. You got you can swing the bat, but you need a position. And coming through that season, I, I tore a ligament in my hand. I was playing first and I tried to tag a guy and, and I tagged his knee as he was running. So it tore a ligament in my left hand. I was out for two of the main weeks of the scouting um, season. And um, the Dodgers, uh, Tommy worked me out a little bit in spring training. And then I went up to Philadelphia in, uh, before the draft. And he said, you know, get him behind the plate and see what he can do. And, and so Joe Ferguson and Mark Cressy started throwing at me a little bit. I threw to second. Mark hit me some pop-ups. And I went down the bullpen a little bit. And, and they said, look, he can do this. So that's when actually the Baltimore Orioles, uh, Orioles, a scout by the name of Ed Libertor, really liked my bat. And he told Tommy, you know, I may just draft him because he could hit. You know, we'll just take a crack at him. And Tommy goes, you're not drafting him. We're going to draft him. So that's when they got in a little bit of an argument. And so the Dodgers didn't end up drafting me. and um, they scouted me a little bit in the summer. And then about a week before school started, I was going to go to St. Thomas University, which was a pretty good, I think it was Division Two at the time. And um, uh, uh, Ben Wade and um, I forget, uh, Bobby Darwin, uh, they, they brought me out to L.A. They worked me out. I hit balls in the seats and they were absolutely astounded. And Tommy said to Ben, he goes, if he was a shortstop hitting balls like that, would you sign him now? And uh, Ben said, absolutely. He goes, well, if he was a catcher hitting balls in the seats like that, would you sign him now? And and Ben said, absolutely. He goes, well, he's a catcher. And Ben goes, no, he's not. He's a first baseman. <laughs> so Tommy said, he's a catcher, you know, sign him. And that's began the journey. They gave me 15 grand, if you could believe it, for a 60 or second round oh, pick. So no, they that's that, that's I got two grand. I was freaking drafted 32 rounds higher than you. Well, at that, it's crazy. A lot of scouts in the summer were starting to notice. They were like, well, he can hit. Where is he going to play? We just don't know. And then you look at my original scouting report, you know, that's pretty much what they said. So I kind of got lost, lost in the shuffle, obviously getting hurt. My, my uh, sophomore year didn't help. So, um, the Dodgers drafted me and then I went right to instructional. They didn't want me to go to short season because they go, it's going to be a year on his eligibility and we, we know he's going to convert to catcher. So they put me right into instructional league. And I remember Kevin Kennedy and Johnny Roseboro. I just started going to the bullpen and blocking balls and um, receiving balls and throwing to second. And, and next thing I know, I'm in a game catching. How, go figure. You know, it was that quick. <laughs> oh man, trial by fire. Kevin Kennedy, man, that's uh love Kevin. He was my manager with the Rangers and the Red Sox and 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 well, I had him on my podcast before and he talked about some of the coaches that were in the Dodgers organization. I mean, it's a laundry list of great Amazing. players and I mean, who were some of the coaches that you had when you wow. first signed? I'm one of the few people that could say I actually took batting practice off Sandy Koufax. I mean, my first year, Sandy Koufax, still in pretty good shape. He was pitching off the mound. Actually, he was in the cage and snapping off curveballs, and you could hear him hiss. And he said, jump in. And we jumped in the cage, and we were taking our hacks off him. And and, uh, among others, Don Drysdale, God rest his soul, he passed away my rookie year very tragically um, in Montreal. And I mean, you name it, you know, the, the minor leagues were, were stacked. They had a lot of former players would come back. But ultimately, I believe in Tommy's work ethic. I mean, I tell people all the time that you would not believe how hard he worked us. I mean, I would be an A ball or double A and um, 
I would hear on the walkie-talkie. I'd catch seven innings, and I'd hear Piazza up to the big game. I'd go up to the big game. I'd catch a bullpen. I'd maybe get in at bat, maybe not. And then after the game, Tommy would wheel out the cage, and we would hit on the field in Vero Beach after the game on, on a – you know, on a weekday or a Saturday or a Sunday. And then we'd roll right into the clubhouse, shower up and then get dinner and go to bed, you know, chill out in the room. And I think it was such an incredible experience because we just worked. And um, there was just, I mean, I believe this and I've talked about this before that if you're doing things, that's why I really, with these new age and, and all the new um, sort of, uh, data and all these new analytics and all the new training methods and all these things. It was like, I truly believe if you're doing something correct athletically, you won't get hurt. Case in point, when you watch the Japanese pitchers, I mean, they'll throw 200 pitches, then they'll throw a bullpen the next day. We used to watch these guys. We would get a team from Korea or from Japan and watch these guys pitch. And they just threw, threw, threw. I mean, the Dominican guys, they, I mean, I watched Raul Mondesi. I mean, he would throw from foul pole to foul pole and, now, I think just in my humble opinion that maybe guys that are, they, they just are coddled a little bit too much. And I'm not saying, of course, there's legitimate injuries. Guys do get hurt, but you also have to force your body to develop and grow and push past those little crinks and, and pains and all these things. I mean, when I first started catching, I bruised like a grape, but then I started getting tougher. And the more I did it, the better I got and the tougher I, I, I got and the more durable I got. Right, right. Well, my first, my first game in the big leagues for the Rangers, we had a guy named Nolan Ryan who uh, he threw a few pitches in his day, and he always preached when he was a front office guy with the Rangers about we need to extend these guys, we need to extend these guys, throw more, throw more, and it seems like everybody's doing the opposite of that: throw less, go max effort for as long as you can, and then we'll bring in the next guy. And I think that's a big reason why so many guys are blowing out now. I would agree. I mean, I think what they've done is, in, in essence, if your starter can go four or five and then it just turns into like a conga line, you know, get these guy, get the next guy and throw hard and throw hard and throw hard. And, you know, look, we're not kidding. It. Velocity is very important. Um, that's the first thing that scouts look at. It's the first thing that everyone, you know, light up the gun and whatnot. But, you know, I remember facing a guy like Doug Drabeck. I mean, this guy did couldn't, I mean, didn't throw that hard, but he could throw four pitches for a strike any time in the count. I think he won a Cy Young, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, this guy, I mean, he would give you the easiest 0 for 4 you've ever had. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're like, it's just, I think that that is a little bit of a, of a lost art. I mean, pitching in a sense that being able to subtract. And I remember catching one year, one of my last years was San Diego and I was catching this kid, Clay Hensley, and he had bases loaded, no outs. And I went out there and I said, dude, if you give up one run here, it's a good inning. I said, and I said, dude, you have to subtract. I go, we can't, we're not going to throw the ball through the wall. These guys can turn around good gas. You have to be able to basically locate your off speed and know when to get your off speed to finish so you can get a swing and a miss. And, um, next thing I know, he, popped the guy up and threw a double play ball and we were out of the inning. And he, and I said, he said, I can't believe it was that easy. He came to me and I go, well, it's not that easy. I go, but you do have to show different looks and you do have to subtract and add. And a big league pitcher, in my opinion, has to have just as much confidence in taking something off a pitch as he has in putting something on a pitch. Right. I'm glad you said that because I get a lot of arguments about on social media about, uh, you know, the velocity stuff and, for me as a hitter, if you threw hard and it was straight, I didn't really care how hard it was. I knew I could time it up. But it's the guys that you mentioned that could pitch, the David Cones, the Drabecks, the Danny Darwins, the guys, those guys gave me fits because I didn't know what to look for. It, it was going to be a little sinker in or a little slider away or a change up. But I loved facing those dudes that would just rear back and try and throw it by you. Well, that's true. I mean, I remember uh, when the Marlins called up Matt Ma- Manti, I believe. He was with the Marlins, I believe, in the Diamondbacks. And uh, he had told me the story. I'll never forget it because I played with him a little bit. I think it was 95 they called him up. And I'm watching him. I'm like, damn, this kid throws pretty hard. And next thing you know, I deposited him right center field in the bleachers. <laughs> and he always told that story that he was like, okay. You know, it, it was the whole Tommy Lasorda story used to say. 
when a guy was coming up and, and he was getting hit around, he'd say, hey, back in high school, I would strike out 16, 17 guys a game. And Tommy said to the guy, hey, what about those two guys that got a hit off you? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, they're here. The guys that struck out are back in your hometown. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's true. I remember that. he threw, I mean, he threw really hard. I believe he was a closer when he came up with the, the Diamondbacks. And, but it looked like it was straight as a string. And I tell people this all the time. I was like, major league hitters can time a speeding bullet. You have to be able to, like you say, add, subtract, move the ball around. And I remember Lenny Harris too, you know, and he always told me he was a great pinch hitter. And he told me the same thing. When guys are throwing hard, it's almost like it sounds weird, but just kind of like playing tennis. You know, I knew when a guy was really bringing it, all I had to do was square it up. All I had to do was get the barrel on the ball, and that ball was going to go. And I never really felt like I had to swing from my ass and really crank back and, and you know, hit it 900 feet. You only got to hit it 340 feet down the lines or, you know, four-something to center. I mean, you just have to hit it like Dave Parker. You know, I remember Pat Mahomes, who I played with, and he used to laugh. He said, the high pitch is already fence high. Just tap it out of the ballpark. And it's, it sounds funny and easy, but I remember that. I'm like, you know what? Just tap it. Don't feel like you got to crank up and really get it going. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was curious. I mean, I, I would wonder how I would hit today because obviously there's a lot of high velo guys and, um, I'm sure it would be different because these guys are stronger. These guys, the athletic training methods are better. Everyone's in the gym and they're working out different ways. There's, there's all kinds of biometric stuff and biomechanical things. And, I think that's great, but I think I'm I'm just curious because, like you said, I mean, I used to love when a guy was throwing harder. It was like, bring it on, man. Let me just turn that stuff around. Yeah, I mean, just lay off the high fastball. I would always my key was don't if it's above my hands, let it go. And, and what I see now a lot of is guys continually swinging at that pitch up in the strike zone and missing it underneath over and over and over. I was like. Man, at some point, you guys have to make an adjustment, right? And, and well, I don't see them making adjustments. And I think that's one thing where I think is most frustrating. And I saw this my last year. I played for for the A's my in my final season, and I saw the way the game was going. And um, it was kind of weird because I think we always knew like the big power hitters, Reggie Jackson and Harmon Kilburn. I mean, they're going to strike out. And when guys are hitting 40-something, 45 home runs a season, they're, they're going to strike out a lot. But I think it came to the point where the game really decriminalized the strikeout to the point of where you know and I knew when we played or we broke in, if you struck out over 100 times, everyone say, he can't play, he can't hit. Yep. And now it's a little bit sort of disconcerting for me because, again, I don't know the new trends and I haven't really studied the whole shifting and why they did it and why you give up this or that and the other thing. But I, but I mean, the players that I just had here, they would tell me, Hey Mike, one year I hit three. I mean, I told people all the time in three years, I hit three thirty six, three fifty six, and three sixty, And I finished third in the batting title. <laughs> and which is because I played with obviously in the same league as Tony Gwynn. Yeah. But, um, I think then now the coaches will say, Mike, we don't care about you hitting 350. You know, we want you to hit 250, but we want you to hit 50 home runs instead of 35 or 40 home runs. And uh, I couldn't do it. I, I, I just know you couldn't. I know you couldn't. I'm sorry. I couldn't do know. it. I used I to love to make either. contact. Yeah, I mean, there's no way I could. I mean, obviously, I, I couldn't hit for power anyway, but I see a lot of guys in my mind that probably shouldn't be trying to hit for power that are still hitting for power and striking out. I mean, now it's 200 times a year, Mike, 150 to 200 times a year. And I noticed looking through your numbers, you'd never struck out more than you never struck out a hundred times. The most mm. I believe you struck out was 91 times mm. in your entire career. And you walked. And I also know um, from talking to Todd Pratt that you busted your butt on every mm. freaking ground ball. You never took a playoff, and you could also drive the ball. You hit the ball better the other way, in my opinion, than you did pulling it. But you could also, if the, if the situation called for it, you would hit a ground ball to the right side or try and drive it through the right side to get the guy over because we're trying to win a ball game. 
No, it's it's true. It's it's about back control, and it's about. I mean, if a guy's striking out two hundred times, I mean, think about it. The difference between hitting two fifty and three hundred in a hundred at bats is five hits. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Twenty five hits to thirty hits. So in those seventy something, you can't put the ball in play twenty times. Maybe out of those times, you'll get three or four hits. Um, you know, I hit 360 one year and I'll never forget. It was like maybe the beginning of September. And I said to myself, I got to get two hits in a walk today. I mean, to basically come, try to get a shot at this batting title. And it was, that was it. Every day I grinded and, and tried to squeeze one out that lasted bat. Get it, get a hit, get a hit, get on base, get a hit. And Eric Carroll, I think I told you in a tweet one time, he said, man, you were, your ass is slow. He said, but you're out there all the time. And I just find it hard to believe that a pitcher would would want to pitch with a guy with guys on base. I find it hard to believe that that the same guy who's going to strike out or pop up to on the first instead of getting on base or choking up or a God forbid choke up, put the ball in play with two strikes. I find that hard to believe that the game is better off because they are telling guys not to do that. It just it baffles my my imagination, really. No, me too, man. So, so who were uh, some of the hitting coaches that influenced you when you first uh, got into pro ball? Well, for me, it was Reggie Smith. I mean, I worked and I studied Ted Williams. I mean, it's very documented. There was something recently uh, that was replaying when Ted Williams was in uh, King of Prussia. He was doing a card show. And Eddie Libertor, the same scout I had mentioned, was very close with him and Joe DiMaggio, for that matter. Um, and he said, Hey, my buddy Vince has got a kid who's a pretty good looking young hitter and he's got a cage and, uh, he's 16 years old, 15 years old. And Teddy's like, let's go see him hit, you know? And mm-hmm. next thing I know, Ted Williams is at my house and I'm cranking up the old jugs machine. I'm hitting the Easton, you know, black magic and nervous as heck. I mean, I could hardly, I was, I was shivering because of, of what he represented, not only as a ball player, but as a, as a veteran, as a, as an American, as a, as a real I mean, a, just a, just an incredible uh, historical figure and and uh, a patriotic figure to our country. But putting that aside, I mean, he was amazing because he came in, he worked with me on a few things. He told me not to stride out, not to go out and get the ball, to coil my hips, to build leverage. The power comes from the large muscles of the body. And at that time, I really didn't understand what he was trying to say, but it did stick in the back of my mind. And then as he was walking out, he said, look, you look great, kid. He goes, I'm, you hit better than me when I was 15 or 16. He goes, but he, that's only half the battle. The other half is getting your pitch, knowing your strike zone, hitting to the situation, being a smart hitter, doing your research, all these things. And, it, and that's the thing I most remembered. And then when I ironically got to the Dodgers, and I believe, I don't believe in, in – um, I, I believe that everything happens for a reason. And I just believe in my life's journey because of my faith that, um, you know, God put Reggie Smith, who learned from Ted Williams, who came up with the, with the Boston Red Sox. And hit, Ted Williams was a hitting coach. And I, and I remember two funny stories when he was telling me this story when Jim Rice was coming up. And um, they said, Jim Rice is having trouble with the high fastball. And Ted Williams goes, tell him not to swing at it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And I just remember, you know, Reggie telling these stories. And um, another story about Bill Madlock. You know, Bill Madlock could rate. Oh, and yeah. uh, I think he won a few batting titles as well, you know. And I remember I saw him at, a, at an appearance one day or something. I go, Bill, how do you hit the curveball? He goes, don't miss the fastball. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I'm a huge Bill Madlock fan. I grew up a Giants fan, and uh, when he came over to the Giants from the Pirates, and man, this, you know, he wasn't a big guy, and not, he's kind of a, almost like a little pudgy guy, and oh. man, he just hit line drives all over the yard. All over the yard. Did we lose something? No. Mike's on mute. There you go. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I was talking about, uh, I don't know if you heard me talk about Bill Madlock when uh, I Please, remember. you got to be quiet. As a kid, 
being a Giants fan and watching this little kind of not really that athletic looking guy who's kind of a little almost like Kirby Puckett's built and just hitting linias everywhere. Three, yeah, six. no, less is more. And you know what he used to do? He used to really take um, the, um, the the old Iron Mike. We used to call him Iron Mike, you know, the old arm machine. And he told me he literally would get up close to it, like almost 30 feet in front of it and just crack the hands, you know, just get the hands to the ball. And that's how he used to really build up, you know, the eyes, basically getting the eyes used to to the speed. And then when he got in a game that was like slow motion. So, um, ultimately, um, everyone has their own style, the way they hit. I think I can't hit like, uh, you know, a certain guy, certain guys can't hit like me. So you have to sort of figure out what is the style that you, um, that is the best for you. And you may, like I said, I took a little bit of this and a little bit of Ted Williams, a little bit of Mike Schmidt, and I tried to basically mold my swing to my style. But I knew one thing that I needed to do, and I, I'd like to spray the ball all over the field and use the whole, the whole field to hit. So that was one thing for me that I knew was one of my strengths. Yeah, I mean, I still can, in my mind, picture some of those balls you hit to right center. And just when you were with the Mets – and I played with you a little bit, I think, interleague play when I was with the Red Sox. Man, it looked like you were chopping down a tree. Your hands were high. You were so quiet at the plate, relaxed. You stayed back, and you would almost hit straight down, and then your barrel would go up in the air, and you created some kind of backspin. And I mean, was that your plan is to hit the, like the middle to the top half of the baseball and create backspin? Because I know – a lot of people are teaching the opposite of that now. Hit mm-hmm. the other side of the baseball and hit it in the air. Well, I think you're right in a sense that when I read and I see the way people are talking about hitting and, and, and I don't, again, if the ball's coming down and your hands are up, your hands are going to go down to the baseball. And if the, the, the ball is high for me to drive a high pitch, obviously my hands are going to go to the baseball. So but I think the big thing that people are missing is, in essence, that you have to hit with the large muscles of the body. I mean, and for that to occur, it basically you have to have your hands closer to your body. I mean, I, if the hands are far away from the body, it's kind of like throwing a punch. You know, the best boxers in the world, they hit that little zip punch, that, that little uppercut, like a good uppercut is not coming like a haymaker. And so once I started sort of controlling the swing and it's hard to, to obviously describe it over, over without, without, um, showing you, but you have to, the hands have to be attached to the body the, the, the bat and the hands are an extension of the body. And yes, I mean, for me, it's, it's to generate leverage. You have to, you have to generate it from the hips and the thighs. And that to me is how I got my power. I mean, yes, I had strong hands and, I used to do the wrist exercises, and that's the last contact point between the, the hands and, and the bat. And it's very important because I got my share of blue pits like anybody else over, and I was probably strong enough to muscle them out over the second baseman's head into right field. But ultimately, to drive the baseball, it has to come from the lower half. I mean, look at, again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at Hank Aaron, you can look at Willie Mays, you look at all the greatest hitters, Ted Williams from, from Ted, Ted, they used to call him the splendid splinter. I mean, he wasn't a muscular guy, but man, he could generate leverage and bat speed because he used to use his whole body to, to drive the bat through the baseball, down through the baseball, not at the baseball. And I think a lot of kids kind of quit and I'm seeing these new methods where guys are really teaching to swing up. And, and I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that's the way you teach. I mean, maybe there's some guys like a guy like Judge, as you've, I've seen you talk about, that can do it. I mean, he's a freak. You know, he's the exception. You know, he's not the norm. And mm-hmm. to, 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 but you watch his swing. You know, it's not that, it's not that of a, of a, of a crazy exaggerated uppercut. I mean, it's to the baseball and, and to do that, he has to follow some of those guidelines that the greatest hitters have, have used. Yeah. And I, I looked at your first year in the big leagues because I've had a, a few arguments with the uh, Aaron judge's hitting guy about how judge would have never been 
what he is today had he not changed his swing and worked with this guy because he struggled his first September in the big leagues. And I noticed that you hit 230 your first September in the big leagues. And mm-hmm. like most, a lot of guys do, their first taste of the big leagues, you're overwhelmed. You're, sure. you know, you're just trying to not mess up. You're just, you know, almost, it's almost like an out of body experience. It's like, am I really in the freaking big leagues? Yeah. My whole life, I dreamed about it. And you struggled. Did you go and make wholesale changes after your first month in the big leagues? No, I mean, of course not. And and then I think a lot of it too just comes from confidence and it comes from, it comes from uh, repetition. It comes from correcting, self-correcting. It comes from a better approach. It, it comes from better, better pregame preparation. I mean, I don't know how these guys, honestly, and again, I'm not putting them down. I, I think the key we have to realize here is that we're not trying to be sort of um, venomous, but you're saying, and I'm saying, is like, look, we've done this. We've been through this. So I see things that are happening and then guys maybe are failing and they're trying to figure out why. And I'm just saying, you're just getting just paralysis from analysis. Like you can't go up and hit a baseball in the major leagues. If to me, you're looking at film all the time. I see those guys that used to get, the only reason why guys would look at film is to see if a guy punched them out and the ball was a strike. You know, it wasn't so much about, um, certain um, mechanical things like Tony Gwynn was the first guy, but he was looking at film just to see the, the pitch repetition, the pitch counts and getting into, you know, a guy on certain tendencies and things like that. Now, again, everything, everyone has to do what works for them. But what I'm trying to tell you is at least what worked for me, a slow footed right-handed hitter who can hit with, you know, 300, I needed my mind clear. I needed to see the ball. I needed to not really worry so much about what got this guy is going to throw, but where it's going to go. Where is he going to throw it? And what does he do with two strikes? And the ability for me to not be afraid to hit with two strikes. And uh, that was just something that worked for me and I think would work for a lot of guys if they don't get caught up into a, a vortex of, of – um, of, of information and, and complication and, and confusion. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you said that because the only time I, and we, I mean, obviously we didn't have the technology these guys have today. We had, you know, the VCR tape where the video guy was in the clubhouse and you had to run up there to see if you got a hose on that pitch that you thought was ball. <laughs> and I did that in Boston. I was so pissed off and it was, I mean, it wasn't a, a you know, a short walk. I had to run down the tunnel, yeah. across the concourse, through the locker room, through the train room, to the back of the weight room to see Billy Broadbent, our video guy, and ask ask him to rewind uh, the tape so I can see if that pitch was a strike. So I would know in my mind if I got hosed or not. And I go up there and I look at it and I was like, man, that's not a strike. And Billy goes, I think that's a strike for you. I was like, listen, Billy. I don't give a shit if you think I can not, but if I tell you it's a freaking ball, you say it's a ball. He goes, all right, Frito, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. Those guys used to do that all the time. I mean, you know, Karos used to do that a little bit, run down to the video guy. And back then, you know, he had the Super 8 tapes. You know, he had all this changing all the tapes out of the out of the machines and stuff. And uh, Yeah, different yeah, I, every hitter. A different tape for every hitter, right? I know it was crazy, and and um, I I always felt honestly, and and this is another thing that the game has changed. I mean, you remember there was American League umpires, there was National League umpires. Umpires had different zones. There was pitch pitcher umpires, there was hitter umpires. I mean, and that's changed a lot. So they've kind of turned that, and like I read, they're going to come up with the electronic um, strike zone, and. I don't know. It seems to me they're taking a little bit of the personalities out of the game because honestly, I never really felt if you're going to be beefing about umpires all the time, then you kind of have to go, wait a minute. Uh, They're not wrong all the time. Of course, they're human and they're going to blow a call. And there's certain circumstances where they may be more apt to to, to call a pitch like a guy like Greg Maddox is going to earn an inch or two off the plate. Whereas if a kid comes up and he can't hit, you know, he's he's throwing the ball all over the place, he's not going to get that pitch. That was just something that we knew and something that we had to adjust to. Yeah, you knew if you went into Atlanta to face Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz in a three-game series, 
and you had Hirschbeck behind the plate, that you're going to have to expand the zone because the guys on the mound have earned it. And they and I, I understood that. I didn't like it, but I prepared myself for that, sure. knowing that Greg Maddox is going to get four inches off the plate with Javi setting up there. And then you just had to accept it. And, and I missed that part of the, the interaction with the umpires. I was told by an umpire, you have to know what each umpire strike zone is before the game starts. And I'm like, all right. I never really thought of it that way because I just thought it was a strike. It was a strike. But now what I'm seeing with all the, the K zone on TV and potentially the, the robo umpires, the strike zone is shrinking in my mind, and it should be easier to hit. So why is the major league batting average 243 in the freaking major leagues? Uh, it's a mystery to me. I think it's just because these coaches or the system tells them that even with two strikes, you just they're going for the pump. They're just and and I I just don't think that's smart hitting. It just don't. I, it doesn't make sense to me. And it really is something that yeah. I mean, also too. I mean, I hit a lot of home runs with two strikes where I was just basically just trying to play tennis. Guy spins one or or you know, you get a mistake and the more pitches you see, um, the more chances the guy may throw up a cement mixer or something like that, you know? And so, um, I was a mistake hitter too. I, I loved getting a crippled pitch, uh, and doing some damage on it. I used to say, if you see trash hanging around, take it out. Um, so if I saw a guy slow down and I also believe that you know, with, with the most disconcerting thing too, even going back to the, to the Astros thing, it's like, I, I mean, we would do our own sign stealing. You know, basically it was like if we picked something up, I mean, I remember Eric Karros and Robbie Alomar, they were incredible at saying, do you want the signs? And I was like, what? And the guy would, and he would say, yeah, on the stretch, the guy flares his glove. It's going to be off speed. If he holds the, the glove a little lower, it's going to be a uh, heater. And that's all I needed to know. I didn't need to know the pitch or the count or anything. If I just picked up something, I go, this is going to be off speed, then then that's all you really need to know. And so, you know, these skills and these little game, cat and mouse games and all these things with all this superlative video and all these, it's kind of it's kind of just not as, um, I guess, just not as fun as uh, anymore in that realm. <laughs> I hear you, man. And when I see the guys after they're at bats going into the dugout and you look over there and there's three guys not watching the game, not watching their teammates, not watching the pitcher on the mound, just looking at their at bat. To me, that's very selfish. And, you know, you need to be watching the game there for your teammates. And I think a lot of it is just looking at their mechanics and this and certain things. And I agree with the, you know, the paralysis by analysis, man, it's, Forget about that crap. Let's go play baseball for three hours and win a freaking game. Well, not only that, too. The best computer that you can have is between your ears. Yep. It's watching. Watch the guy. I would sit there in a the dugout. I, would, I remember there's a few times I was sitting there in a the dugout, and um, I'm a catcher, so either I would go warm the guy up or I wouldn't, but I would look down uh, to the right field bullpen and no one else would be out there. And I'm watching the starting pitcher warm up. And, yep. you know, I just wanted to see. I wanted to see what he was throwing. I wanted to see the rotation on the curveball. I wanted to get a feel of, of, of how he's warming up. Well, okay, maybe he's got a better heater today. Maybe he's got a better um, curveball today. Maybe – and watch him. I mean, you learn by watching. You don't have to get on the video all the time because – Where's that video going to be when you're in the box? I mean, you can't build a crutch so much where, and I used to go write stuff down at home. I mean, we used to keep a, I used to keep a journal and just write little things down or believe it or not, my memory was so good. I really didn't need to. I mean, I, I mean, you face a great, great Maddox, you know what you're getting. You face a Smoltz, you know what you're getting. We would yep. face those guys a lot. You didn't, it wasn't a computer program. And so it's a balance. I'm not anti-technology by any stretch of the imagination, but at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta form a balance, and you have to take off the training wheels sometimes, and and get out there and and just kind of kind of uh, wing it and and see what happens. Yep, yep. So uh, Dave uh, Dave D'Agostino, the our producer, wants to ask you a question. Sure, Mike. Your recall is amazing, and with all the home runs you hit. 
and all the history that happened in New York with baseball. I want to take you back to when you played for the Mets, uh, hit a historic home run post 9-11. Uh, can, can you take us back to that at bat and the emotions of the, the crowd, the feeling in the stadium that day yeah. and how important that hit was, not just for you, but for uh, a state and maybe even an entire nation? Well, I mean, that was an incredible um, night uh, as far as just in a sense to start a little bit of the healing process because, I mean, being in New York that week, it's still something for me that fundamentally changed my life and I think changed a lot of people's lives. And just the way we think of um, family, friends, relationships, and uh, it was it, it shook us to our core. And we had never really experience anything like that in the States and to see the way the city persevere, persevered and came together was incredibly inspiring, uh, sad at the same time, because that whole week was so, there was so much trepidation. We didn't really know when we should go back, when, when we should, if we should, uh, the, the every day watching the news and, and seeing all the, the horrible images of that week. But through that started, we started seeing some bravery and, and we went down and visited some, some uh, first responders who had survived and to see their bravery and to kind of realize that a couple of them said to us, you know, you guys got to need to get back out there. You need to get back out there. The city needs you. Uh, they need you now. And so that was the all kind of all we needed to go. And then once we got out there, that game for me, and I've said this many times that when I hear bagpipes in general, I, you know, I cry. I was in Scotland recently and um, they were playing Scotland, the brave on the pipes. And I started getting teary eyed. It's just a, an instrument that really gets me going. And when they came out on the field, I was, um, it was difficult. It really was. And, and, you know, Jeff, I mean, how hard it is to play this game with a, with a clear mind, but I prayed, I reached down deep and I said, look, we have to be professional. We have to get through the night. And um, yeah, I mean, Carsey threw hard and, that at bat, I remember taking the first pitch, it was right down the middle, and I said to myself, damn, that's probably <laughs> the, the one pitch I'm going to get to drive. And usually, you know, he has a high heater. He could come in off the plate or he can throw something away. And he actually had a good curveball, which he didn't throw that much. But So you could tell the swing. I was bailing just a little because he was going to come in off the plate. I was going to try and, you know, cheat to it and get the barrel on it. But it was down over the plate, and I just barreled it up. And, uh, yeah, it was an incredible moment, and it's just something that I'm honored that people continue to to call that home run and, and tell me how much it meant to them. And, and um, there was a woman there who lost her husband and had three sons, and all three of them became firefighters. And she talks about that moment as well as she was at the game and um, – I don't, it's one of those surreal moments that definitely transcends baseball without a doubt. Yeah, I get, uh, I just got chills by the way, because it reminded me, um, we were in Baltimore. I was playing for the Blue Jays. We were in Baltimore and, uh, playing golf that day was playing with, uh, Chris Carpenter and, and Joey Hamilton and mm. the marshal comes by like the course was closed. There's only a couple groups and the marshal drives by and says, yeah, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. Yeah. We're like, oh man, we're thinking a little, you know, commuter plane, whatever. Yeah. No big deal. We keep playing. Comes back by again. He goes, another plane hit the other World Trade yeah. Center. We're like, oh my god. So we get into the, we finish, we get walk into the pro shop. They have a little tiny TV sitting on a table, and we see the towers fall. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, what just happened? I jump in the car. Back to the hotel, call my mom who lives in California. She was sleeping. Tell her, get to the hotel, game's canceled, team mm. meeting. And we stayed in Baltimore for like a week. Mm. We took the bus back to Toronto. And I'll be honest, I didn't have any desire to play any more baseball. I was like, where's my family? Yeah. How am I going to get home? It was, I mean, it was such a scary time. But I, I know the, the two things in my, to me, that inspired me the most that happened in baseball after that were your home run and George Bush throwing out the first pitch. Mm, yeah. Every time I watch that, I get chills. No, that was, that was awesome. And, uh, I mean, 
It's a little difficult. It's kind of a mixed thing for me right now because I think the further we get away from it, the more sort of desensitized, I guess, people are. And it's hard. Uh, it's it's difficult to educate my kids as to what happened because I, none of them were born and it's before they were born. So it's making me sad a little bit because I feel that, it, as I said, the longer we get away from it, you were there, I was there. So we we kind of know and I hope it's something that um, we continue to learn from, and um, obviously, we hope we never it never happens again. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. Well, uh, I won't keep you much longer, Mike. This has no. been great. I do want to ask you um, about the Miami City Ballet. Yeah. Happened <laughs> in, <laughs> on a lighter note, uh, wipe these tears from my eyes as I'm getting choked up. But uh, in 2013 you made an appearance with the Miami City Ballet. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Well, fortunately, I didn't have to wear the tights, and it wasn't a dancing thing. It was um, – oh, what was the name of the play? It's been so long already, but um, I was the villain in this, I think, Rumble on Fifth, not Fifth Avenue. I'm not sure. I have to look it up. But there was a well, wealthy donor, a uh, friend of mine, and uh, they were – they were having this play and the dancers are incredible, by the way. I mean, it was definitely, I mean, I was the least talented one on that stage. I can assure you that. And uh, ultimately he said, look, uh, let's do something fun. If you, if you do this, um, you know, the show, I'll make a huge donation. And at the time my, both of my daughters were dancing and they were like, yeah, daddy do it. And I was like, uh, okay. You know, and, and, um, my youngest daughter, Paulina, I mean, she was an amazing ballerina. And then she kind of said, you know, once they started going to point shoes that she wanted to kind of go into the gymnastics and now she does kind of rhythmic gymnastics, but she was really into it. And, and obviously my girls, anybody knows as a daughter, they take your heart. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and I got dressed up like, I think I was a gangster or something. And, and, Basically, I was the, the villain who was trying to shake someone down and they were dancing all around. And um, it was pretty amazing. I, I have to admit, I'll tell you, it was incredible to witness the amount of discipline and the amount of talent they have and to see the power, um, you know, the jumps uh, and things like that. So even though, you know, it's something we usually aren't exposed to as ballplayers, but it was it was really cool to see. That's cool. Uh, Mike, thanks for being a good sport with with that story. That's uh, the research we do before before we always have to end it with a light note. Um, and uh, we're having some little audio, but uh, thanks for coming on today. Uh, Jeff's podcast is is amazing. He's getting great feedback, and you've been a phenomenal guest with us. And Jeff, with your permission, can I do the she gone? Yes. Absolutely. All right. So this is this is the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network, episode eighty seven. Jeff Fry's She Gone podcast. It's the first time I get to do the She Gone, so you'll have to critique me this time, Jeff. Mike Piazza, Hall of Famer. And with that, She Gone. Paul, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie.